McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm Duray McKesson, and you're listening to Cricket Conversations. On today's episode, I talked to Ari Berman, a writer of Mother Jones and the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. We discussed midterm results and how we'll be affected, as well as where the country currently stands when it comes to protecting voting rights. Hope you enjoy it. Ari Berman, it's great to talk to you. We have a lot to talk about. Hey, Dre, thank you for having me back. And you're right, never a dull moment in this election. Now, can we start with the purging? Is is that it's, you know, it feels like people looked up and all of a sudden it was like people were being purged in the hundreds of thousands. And it, was it that we just didn't know? Was it that we weren't paying attention? Was it that people knew and like we couldn't get the word out quick enough? Like what, how did we even get to a place where voters were being purged at the magnitude that they were being purged? Well, I I think part of it was that it was closer to the election, so it got more attention. But I think you're also right that the level of voter purging increased. Uh, There was a very comprehensive report by the Brennan Center for Justice that looked at Southern states that previously had to approve their voting changes with the federal government before the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And they found that in states like Georgia, voter purging had increased, that Republican officials were removing more people from the voter rolls. So for example, Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State in Georgia, who of course was running for governor this year and essentially overseeing his own election, he purged twice as many people from the voter rolls from 2012 to 2016 compared to the previous four years, 2008 to 2012. So the level of purging, I think, got worse. And I also think it got more surgical in trying to target certain constituencies, particularly Democratic-leaning constituencies. Yeah. Did, did we just not know? Did this sneak up on us? Like, How did hundreds of thousands of people get purged in such a short period of time and it seemed to catch everybody by surprise? The thing is, it's hard to separate the good purges from the bad purges, if that makes sense. I mean, Hmm. people are purged for good reasons. People are removed because they've died or they've moved or they've committed some sort of offense that renders them ineligible to vote. That's okay. But there's also people that are being purged for bad reasons, reasons that are controversial, such as they didn't vote in a few elections and they've been removed or, or simply purged for wrong reasons, being confused with ineligible voters or being targeted based on where they live or what their race or their ethnicity might be. And so in Georgia, for example, in one day, uh, Brian Kemp removed half a million people from the voter rolls in 2017. And it took a long time to sort through that list and say, these are the people that should have been purged. And these are the people that have been wrongly purged. And often people don't even realize they've been purged until they show up for an election, they find suddenly they're not registered to vote anymore. He purged that many people in one day? He purged that many people in one day. Georgia had a process where they had delayed voter purging for a certain period of time. And so on one day in 2017, they just removed half a million people from the voter rolls, which is a really, really staggering number. And there have to be safeguards built into the system 
to make sure that you're only purging people that are ineligible to vote. And the worry that in Georgia and other states, a lot of people who were eligible voters got caught up in these voter purges. Now, we've heard, I've, I've definitely heard people talk about the Voting Rights Act being weakened and and the consequences of what that means. Can you, but I don't actually know what that means enough to explain it to anybody else. What does that mean? What it means, practically speaking, is that there were 16 states, either in the entirety or parts of the states, primarily in the South, but not exclusively, that had to approve their voting changes with the federal government under the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because of a long history of discrimination. So states like Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, they had discriminated against black voters for decades. And after the Voting Rights Act was passed, those states had to approve their voting changes with the federal government so that they couldn't do unlawful voter purges or pass restrictive new voting laws or gerrymander people to protect political power. And so the Voting Rights Act was a huge check on discrimination in those states. And when that requirement that they no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government was gutted, it became so much easier for Texas, Georgia, Alabama, these Southern states to implement new voter suppression laws because the federal government couldn't block them anymore before they went into effect. So if you put a restrictive voting law in in effect in a place like Georgia, for example, it could only be challenged after years of litigation. And and in the meantime, voters were caught up in the suppression. So the kind of suppression we saw in Georgia in 2018 would have been limited if not altogether stopped if there was still a strong Voting Rights Act. So can you also explain, before I ask, I have some more questions about the voter rights and like what we can do about purging and things like that. Can you explain what's going on in Wisconsin and states like Wisconsin right now where where it looks like the Republicans are trying to do a, a runaround with uh, the change in power that's happened? It's essentially a legislative coup. What happened in Wisconsin and other states is that Democrats won elections in 2018. Uh, Democrats won every statewide election in Wisconsin in 2018, including the governor's office where Tony Evers defeated Scott Walker. And so what Republicans have done is in a lame duck legislative session, they have essentially stripped the incoming governor, in addition to the incoming attorney general, from core powers, essentially removed core powers from those offices. They've given them back to the Republican legislature, which is heavily gerrymandered. That's how they're still in power in the first place. They've also passed laws that would then make it harder to vote, particularly for Democratic constituencies to vote. One thing that has been proposed in Wisconsin and will likely soon become law is cutting early voting. And Wisconsin has already cut early voting, and that law was struck down by the federal courts in 2016 because the judge said that it was done to suppress black voters in Milwaukee. And so it's amazing to me that Republicans have just lost an election in states like Wisconsin. And the first thing they do is turn around and strip power from the incoming Democrats and make it harder for Democratic constituencies to vote. If this was happening in another country, we would denounce it as a flagrant form of authoritarianism. What can we like? What's the what's the fix with the Voting Rights Act stuff that's happening with with places like Wisconsin? Is there what what can citizens do? That's a really good question. I mean, when you when you're talking about Wisconsin, Wisconsin was one of those states that wasn't covered by the Voting Rights Act in the sense that it didn't have to approve its voting changes with the federal government. That did apply to states like Georgia, states like Alabama, states like Texas. So I think in southern states, federal oversight is really, really important. I, I think in Wisconsin, there just has to be number one, we need some laws nationally, some standards for voting. 
Because right now, there's this incredible patchwork where it's quite easy to vote in some places and quite hard to vote in other states. And if we had some national requirements, for example, if we had that every state should have automatic registration, and every state should have mandatory early voting, and every state should have safeguards against voter purging, that would make it a lot harder for states like Wisconsin to try to game the system. But I also think that people have to be vigilant, that electing people to office is not enough, that basically there has to be a similarly considered effort to defend democracy as there is a similarly considered effort by Republicans right now to try to undermine democracy. And do you think, is there any hope that the, the voter attack might be restored? Like, can that happen legislatively or does it have to go to, through the court? No, it, it can happen legislatively. One of the things the Supreme Court said when it gutted the Voting Rights Act was that Congress could essentially draft a new formula to restore the VRA. And in fact, that is one of the top priorities of the Democratic House of Representatives. They said they are going to hold hearings on voter suppression, and they are going to draft a new law to restore, modernize, and expand the power of the Voting Rights Act, which I think is critically important. Now, Mitch McConnell has already said it, it won't go anywhere in the Senate. Uh, Donald Trump, I don't think, would sign something like that. But you have to get the ball rolling. And I think holding hearings on voter suppression, holding votes on restoring the Voting Rights Act, this is really important in building public support for this agenda. So that's not just something that's inside Washington. People can actually rally around this as a grassroots organizing strategy while they work in the states and other places to try to expand voting rights at the local level while Congress remains gridlocked. And, and what's going on in North Carolina? We covered this on on a recent pod. We were talking about some of the uh, like the the missing absentee ballots and how that that one part of North Carolina won't certify the the House election. What what led to that? This is a really crazy story. So there's a congressional election in North Carolina, North Carolina 9, that was decided by about 900 votes. The Republican won it. And evidence emerged after the election of massive election fraud by Republicans. Basically, what Republican operatives were doing is they were going around, particularly to minority voters, they were taking their absentee ballots, and they weren't submitting them. They were essentially dumping those absentee ballots. At the same time, there was a skyrocketing number of absentee ballots for the Republican candidate, but not for the Democratic candidate. So it appears that, and this is really ironic, DeRay, because we just got in an election where Donald Trump and Rick Scott and Marco Rubio and Paul Ryan, all the major figures in the Republican Party falsely accused Democrats of stealing an election. But here we actually have real concrete evidence of election fraud, and it was committed, lo and behold, by Republicans. The same party that falsely accused Democrats of stealing an election, actually, it appears that they may have stolen an election in North Carolina. That's sort of wild. What's the good news coming out of the, the midterms with regard to ballot initiatives or, or laws that actually do help protect the rights of people to vote? The good news is that seven states passed ballot initiatives that would expand voting rights, make it easier to register to vote, make it harder to gerrymander. To me, that was a, a really good story that came out of 20, 2018 that counted all of the voter suppression that we saw in states like Georgia. So you had Florida, which I know you know very well, restored voting rights to up to 1.4 million ex-offenders. That's just absolutely huge. You had a situation in Florida where one in 10 Floridians, including one in five African-Americans, couldn't vote because of a past felony conviction. That's a huge number of people to be disenfranchised in one of the most important swing states in the country. You had states like Michigan pass automatic and election day registration. You had 
even uh, Republican-leaning states, places like Missouri and Utah, pass measures that would make it harder to gerrymander. So I think this showed that on the local level, on the grassroots level, these kind of pro-democracy initiatives have a lot of support, and even support among a lot of Republicans. That even as Florida was voting narrowly for Republicans for Senate and governor, they were also voting 64% to restore voting rights to ex-offenders. And I think that's really important because for a long time, these measures, as you know, were thought of as liberal issues or that people who embraced them were soft on crime and, and things like that. And I think in Florida in particular, a lot of those myths were busted, that in fact, there was broad support for giving people second chances, that it, 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 it went across ideological lines, that politicians who embraced it weren't hurt uh, at the ballot box. And so I'm hoping that this gives more support uh, broadly for expanding voting rights. But I think in Florida in particular, hopefully it starts to reframe some of the debates about criminal justice reform, which you know so well. Do we know how many places purge voters in, in, in ways that we think are suspect? Because they're like a list of all the places that can every state purge voters? Every, so every state does some sort of list maintenance. The question is, how are they maintaining their list? What's their process for doing it? And some states do it in totally reasonable ways, and some states do it in more e extreme ways. I mean, in, in some states, for example, you can be purged for not voting. That is one thing that we <laughs> saw in Ohio and Georgia and other states that if it used to be that you were only removed from the rolls, DeRay, if you did something that would make you ineligible to vote, like you moved or you died or you committed some sort of crime that would render you ineligible in certain states, simply not voting was not thought of as one of those things. Right. But there were people in Ohio and Georgia and other states that for one reason or another, skipped a few elections. Let's say they voted in 2008 for Barack Obama. They weren't inspired by the candidates in, in the intervening years. They showed up again in 2016. Well, then they're removed from the voting rolls in states like Ohio and Georgia. What worries me about that is that we're, we're, we're expanding the definition of what can get you removed. That That is not evidence of being ineligible. That is just someone making a personal choice. And essentially what you're doing is making voting a use it or lose it right. And we're seeing, uh, we're seeing other reasons why people are purged in Georgia, for example, if your uh, voter registration information didn't exactly match your information on state databases, if there was a missing uh, hyphen or a missing apostrophe, something like that, your registration was blocked uh, from from actually counting. I mean, you could still vote, but you were on a pending registration list. And that was an incredibly confusing process in Georgia. 53,000 people were put on this pending registration list weeks before the election. 70% of them were African-American. 80% were people of color. Those kind of exact match lists only only exist in certain states. And so I think purging voters in of themselves is not necessarily bad, but how states are doing it, purging non-voters, having these really strict exact match laws, things like that, that's when a lot of lawful, eligible, registered voters are getting caught up in these purges. And what's going on with the census and why does that matter to us? Well, the census is huge because the census is kind of like the DNA of our democracy. The census determines how political districts are drawn, and it, it determines uh, how many uh, electoral votes states have, and it determines how $675 billion in federal funding is allocated, all of which happens after the 2020 census. So all of these decisions will ma be made in, in 2021. And the big worry about the census right now is, I mean, first off, it's just been totally mismanaged by the Trump administration, but more importantly, the Trump administration has 
added this question about U.S. citizenship to the census. And the worry here is that uh, many immigrant communities are going to be afraid to respond to the census for fear that if they say they're a non-citizen or they know family members who are non-citizens, that that information is going to be used to deport them. Even though that census information is supposed to be confidential, people are very afraid to give the Trump administration, which is launching unprecedented crackdowns on undocumented immigrants separating parents from children, they're afraid to give the Trump administration that information. If that happens, there will be a much lower response from immigrant communities to the census. That means that places like California and New York and Texas that have large immigrant communities, these places will get fewer resources, they'll have less political power, and the census itself, which is used to distribute all sorts of resources and political power, will become less accurate, less fair, and basically a weapon for Republicans to try to use to their political advantage. And that's a huge concern because if the census is corrupted, pretty much all of American democracy is corrupted as a result. We'll be right back with Ari Berman after this break. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Just go to stitchfix.com slash crookedconvos and tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick five items to send right to your door. Then you try them on, pay only for what you love, and return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix whenever you want. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash to get started today. stitchfix.com slash Life insurance is a deeply unfun topic. Most people don't like thinking about dying, and they definitely don't like thinking about insurance. But actually, having life insurance feels great, and getting that peace of mind doesn't need to be complicated. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. From there, you can apply online, and the unbiased advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape, leaving you free to do the things you actually enjoy. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. Whether you're shopping for disability insurance to protect your income, homeowners insurance, or auto insurance, they can help you get covered fast. If you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com to get your quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. This podcast is supported by the new film, Vice. From Adam McKay, the writer-director of The Big Short, Vice is an epic and comedic look at how Dick Cheney, an uncharismatic vice president, became the most powerful man in the world. You might remember this. He literally shot someone in the face and the victim apologized for it. The film stars Christian Bale, Amy Adams, Steve Carell, and Sam Rockwell. See it in theaters December 25th. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. In Washington, the story often ends when Congress passes a law. 
For The Impact, that's where the story begins. The Impact from Vox is a podcast about the way policies shape people's lives. Last season, Sarah Cliff did what she does best, examining the way healthcare policy has impacted millions of Americans. This season, she's traveling the country to report on some of the most interesting policy experiments happening today. We're looking at cities and states as laboratories of democracy, wrestling with serious problems and experimenting with bold solutions. From democracy, vouchers in Seattle, to education in Vermont, to housing in Baltimore, the impact will follow the policymakers who have designed these experiments and the people whose lives have been changed by them. Listen and subscribe to The Impact by Vox right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. So I know in this last election, the governors, the people are really looking at governorship races because the governors would be in some states would be in charge of certifying the maps about the boundaries and and gerrymandering. Do we know how that's going in the places that it really matters? Well, that's the really big fight after 2020. So the the governors that were elected in, in 2018, they will then be able to oversee the redistricting process in their states. And the census, which we're talking about, forms the basis for the data that's used in redistricting. And so after the 2020 elections, all of these state legislatures are going to convene and they're going to draw new political maps. Now, when that last happened after the 2010 election, Republicans were in control of all of these key swing states like North Carolina and Wisconsin and Michigan. And you got these incredibly gerrymandered maps to the point where in 2018, In Wisconsin, for example, Wisconsin Republicans got only 46% of the vote, but 63% of seats Mm. in the state legislature because of gerrymandering, which is just an astonishing stat. I mean, they've basically been a minority party for a decade, but they've been able to be entrenched through redistricting and through the gerrymandering that they've done. And so having Democratic governors in places like Wisconsin and places like Michigan who were elected in 2018 is going to give Democrats, at least theoretically, a seat at the table. And they're going to be able to veto these maps. The maps will instead presumably be either a compromise or be drawn by the courts. And there should be fairer districts come 2021, although this is going to be a huge fight, DeRay, in the same way that we're already are seeing lame duck legislative sessions to strip incoming Democrats of power. I would not at all be surprised if Republicans in places like Wisconsin are going to try to remove the power of Democratic governors to have a say in redistricting. I think that would be unconstitutional, but I fully expect that we should see that kind of thing in the future. And now the judges. you A lot of civil rights groups have been up in arms about the, the way McConnell has been pushing the judges through the confirmation hearings. I know that Thomas Farr was one that people were really upset about recently that didn't go through. Can you talk about why the Farr nomination was important? It was so important because you had a judge in in Tom Farr who both defended some of the worst voter suppression laws passed by Republicans. He defa- defended a law in North Carolina that the court said targeted black voters with, quote, almost surgical precision. He defended a gerrymandered maps that the court said were among the largest racial gerrymanders ever encountered by a federal court. So he had both defended voter suppression, but even more disturbingly, he had actually engaged in voter suppression himself because Tom Farr back 
back in the 80s and 90s was a campaign lawyer for Jesse Helms, the U.S. Senator from North Carolina, who was one of the most racist politicians in the country at the time, a guy who filibustered the Voting Rights Act, a guy who blocked a national holiday for Martin Luther King. And what they did is they had this voter suppression scheme where they essentially would send misleading postcards to black households, telling them, if you've moved, you're ineligible to vote, things like that, which just are not true. Uh, and there, it was called voter caging. And there was a huge scheme both in 1984 and 1990 to do this kind of thing, and Farr was behind it for Jesse Helms. And he, in fact, he lied to the Senate saying that he had no role in this process, that he only learned about it until after the election, when in fact, he was formulating it in 1984 and in 1990. And in fact, the Washington Post got a memo from the Justice Department in 1991 that showed that Farr was intimately involved in creating this voter suppression scheme. And, and that's why Tim Scott from South Carolina, the only black Republican in the Senate, sided far as being unacceptable. And so I think civil rights groups did a really effective job of mobilizing against this nomination. You wonder what would happen if all of Trump's judicial nominations got the same level of scrutiny that Tom Farr had. But I think he really was uh, one of the, the worst of the bunch. Although, again, Republicans are going to have an expanded Republican majority uh, come January when the Senate reconvenes. And so there is still worry that uh, with a few extra Republican votes, they might try to resurface this nomination, which I think would be really unfortunate because even when Republicans have sunk the nomination, that shows that there's not even full support in the Republican caucus. Would you anticipate like to be the outcome now that the Democrats will control the House. What do you think will change, if anything? Well, first off, they can block legislation. So, for example, I don't think that the tax cuts we saw would ever have become law with Democrats controlling the House. I think they can also do investigations, which is critically important. Uh, that's been uh, totally missing in the Trump era. Uh, there's so many things to investigate. Uh, from from um, my beat, I mean, I know it's really important to hold hearings on voter suppression, everything that we saw in the last election, the kind of voter purging that we've been talking about, the kind of suppression we've been talking about, trying to get to the bottom of what happened, trying to build support for why it's important to do things like restore the Voting Rights Act. And so I think that kind of oversight uh, will be critically important. And then building public support for a reform agenda, uh, for an agenda that will make it easier to vote, that will make it harder to gerrymander, that will get dark money out of politics. I mean, these things aren't going to become possible unilaterally with Democrats in control of Congress, but they can start building more public support for these agendas that people can mobilize it around it in the states, that Democratic presidential candidates can campaign on these issues, and then it makes it easier to try to pass them and enact them when Democrats actually take power. I wanted to ask you, too, can you explain what happened with the Native American disenfranchisement in North Dakota? Yeah, that's a good question. So Republicans essentially passed a voter ID law in North Dakota that said that your ID only counted if you had what was called a residential street address on your ID. And many Native Americans in North Dakota lived on rural tribal reservations that didn't have street addresses. They got their mail at the post office through P.O. Box. So they had IDs, but selling their IDs weren't accepted under North Dakota law to vote because they weren't residential street addresses. So the tribes in North Dakota, weeks and days and even some on election day, had to do this crazy process where they printed thousands of new tribal IDs at their own expense so that people would be able to vote. They literally were on election day uh, printing new IDs and giving people street addresses they never had before to be able to vote. And that was just 
a very clear example of how difficult it had been to vote in this last election, that these are people that not only had a long history of being disenfranchised, but that had IDs that they could use in their in, in the rest of their lives, but suddenly those IDs weren't allowed for voting, and the tribes in North Dakota had to undergo a, a really extraordinary process just to ensure that people would be able to vote in that I didn't state know that they were printing out new IDs. I, like, I, I'd heard about the law. I didn't know that they had printed out IDs like that. That's sort of wild. Their printers were burning up. I mean, their printers were literally catching on fire because they were printing their so many IDs. And I mean, on, on one hand, that's like a heartwarming story of people overcoming obstacles. On the other hand, like, why is it so difficult to vote in, in this day and age? I mean, these are people that already had IDs. They already had tribal IDs. They already had the documentation necessary to prove who they were. And suddenly they had to go through this extraordinary hassle at, at a cost that they had to incur. The state didn't pay for these IDs. The tribes themselves had to pay for these IDs. And it was a really confusing situation. I wasn't in North Dakota, but I talked to a lot of voters and organizers in North Dakota on election day. People didn't know if these IDs would be accepted. Uh, poll workers were telling and they needed different forms of identification. This is a very rural state. This is a poor state. There was almost a blizzard on election day. And so it was just a really chaotic in North Dakota. But I think it was emblematic of the kind of things we saw all across the country when it came to voting. And what about you? Uh, you know, you've done extensive reporting on Chris Kobach. Can you talk about why his loss is important? And like, what he, where does he stand in like the, the sort of uh, the community of people working to disenfranchise other people? He was really the leader of the movement to prevent people from voting, and really the leader in building support for extreme anti-immigration laws. So he kind of fused those two issues. And, and one of his laws in Kansas, which was a law requiring proof of citizenship to register to vote, so meaning you had to have a birth certificate or naturalization papers or a passport to register to vote, that law blocked one in seven Kansans from registering to vote. Over 30,000 people- an extraordinary wow. number of people. It was overturned by the federal courts in before the 2018 election because the federal courts basically said Kobach had presented no evidence of voter fraud in court, but his law had blocked tens of thousands of people from registering to vote. Actually, Kobach kept saying that the evidence of fraud he had presented was the tip of the iceberg. And, and the, the federal judge who was in fact appointed, appointed by George W. Bush said that the it wasn't the tip of the iceberg, that there was no iceberg. <laughs> That's what she told Chris Gobach, which is pretty amazing. And then she held him in contempt of court for refusing to register people to vote. And so I think in a lot of ways, this was a referendum on the extreme politics of, of Chris Kobach. And for him to be defeated in a state like Kansas and for Kansas to elect a Democratic governor, Kansas is a pretty red state. It went for Donald Trump by like 20 points. And so for Chris Kobach to lose in a state like Kansas, I think it is at least to some extent, a repudiation of the kind of things that he ran on, that Kansas uh, w just didn't want to deal with more voter suppression. They didn't want to deal with more anti-immigrant policies, that they had kind of had enough of that. And, and that in a lot of ways, Kobach was the perfect, dist dist in a lot of ways, Kobach was the perfect embodiment of politics in the Trump era. And the fact that he lost in a state like Kansas, I think is pretty significant. What story should we be paying attention to as the next two years unfold? There's going to be a lot. I mean, we're, we already are seeing uh, lame duck attacks by Republican legislatures in states like Wisconsin. We're already seeing 
Donald Trump and other Republicans falsely accuse Democrats of committing voter fraud. We are seeing actual evidence of Republicans committing election fraud in North Carolina to try to sway an election. I think all of those battles are going to intensify as we get closer to the 2020 election. Uh, As Donald Trump gets closer to running for re-election, as control of redistricting in 2021 uh, starts to come into focus with the 2020 elections, I think we're going to see Republicans begin to intensify their attacks on democracy. They've already been doing it. It's not like this is a new thing, but then they're going to intensify this movement. At the same time, I think you're going to see Democrats and local groups being more prepared to deal with these kind of things. Uh, And so I think you're going to see a huge fight over uh, access to the ballot in the run-up to the 2020 elections. I would like to think this is settled. I would like to think that we would just agree that everyone should have a right to vote and we can debate other things. But I think the debate over voting rights, to me, is only going to get sharper and more intense as we get closer to 2020, because there's going to be so much at stake in the next election. I think we already have fatigue from this last election, uh, but... In 2020, we're going to decide a new president, and we're going to decide who gets to draw districts for the next decade. So if you thought 2018 was important, uh, 2020 is going to be that much more important. Ping, are there are there places where we should be paying more attention to? You know, I think, And I ask because I think about the, the North Carolina story, I feel like I only know about it because I'm an activist, not because I saw it on the news. Well, I think states where Republicans are still in control, where swing states where Republicans are in control or where there's divided government, I, I think you should really pay attention to to what they're going to be doing in, in, in places like uh, North Carolina and Wisconsin and Florida and Arizona. In some states, there's going to be a battle like in Wisconsin between the Democratic governor and the Republican legislature. That's going to play out in some states, states like Michigan and Wisconsin that now have divided government. In other states, states where there's still one party control in Florida, in Ohio, and places like that. I think we really have to pay attention to what these kind of people are going to do. Also, are they going to try to gut the initiatives that have been passed? Is the Republican legislature, is the Republican governor in Florida going to somehow try to gut Amendment 4, which was just approved by the voters, and try to make it more difficult for ex-felons who just restored, got their right to vote back? Are they going to make it more difficult for them to be able to actually exercise that right? I think we have to pay attention to that. I don't think we can just think that, oh, we've elected some better people, we've elected some good laws, that's the end of it. That is not the end of it. That's just the beginning of this fight, unfortunately. And where can people go to to stay more in tune with the work that you're doing and to follow? For my work, they can follow me on Twitter at at Ari Berman. They can read my stories at um, motherjones.com and they can read, if they're interested, my book, uh, Give Us the Ballot about the history of the Voting Rights Act and what's happened since 1965. And what do you tell people, I know I've asked you this before, what do you tell people who are losing hope, who are like, you know, we tried and it still is bad? What do you tell those people? Well, what I tell people when it comes to voter suppression is that the fact that Republicans are trying to prevent you from voting is an acknowledgement that your vote has power. And in fact, we saw so many elections in 2018 decided by so few votes. You look at, in Florida, Senate election was decided by 10,000 votes. The governor's election was decided by 30,000 votes. Stacey Abrams came within 15,000 votes of forcing a runoff against Brian Kemp. There were local races that were much, much closer. There was a Kentucky legislative race that was decided by one vote. And so people's votes have power. And I think if people got out and voted in large numbers, uh, they would be amazed in some cases of what they can achieve 
achieve. And, and there were races that were on nobody's radar screen uh, that that flipped. And I just look at, for example, Lucy McBath's race, that now you have uh, someone whose son was murdered uh, due to gun violence, due to white supremacy. And she now holds a black woman who started mobilizing because of gun violence now holds Newt Gingrich's old seat in Congress in suburban Atlanta. To me, that's a recognition of the power that voting has. And so I, I hope that people would be mobilized in 2018 to get out there and vote, not depressed and discouraged. And then what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Think I would like to be able to quote something pithy, but uh, but I'm uh, I'm kind of I think I'm a little brain dead from the last election. But but I, I would just say that you know we need to be as relentless in fighting for democracy as the other side is in trying to take democracy away. And I think that the last election I think validated in a lot of ways the work that you're doing. I hope in some ways it validated the work that I'm doing with with more attention put on voter suppression right now. But I think that this is a very long fight. I mean, you look at someone like Congressman John Lewis, who was brutally beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama in 1965, and then led the movement that helped pass the Voting Rights Act. I mean, he could have been discouraged at any point in the last 50 years. And the fact that he is still fighting uh, 50 years later. He's still fighting even after the Supreme Court got to the Voting Rights Act. He's still fighting even after there was massive voter suppression in his home state in Georgia. People like that really, really give me hope and, and show that there are people that have been doing this for uh, longer than 50 years. I haven't even been alive that long. I know you haven't been alive that long either. And so, I mean, if, if they can do it, I feel like we can do it as well. Boom. Cool. All right. Always a pleasure to have you here. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Dre. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening. Check back next week for another great conversation from Cooking Media. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 